Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori, and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. If you've been listening to the show, you know, just like you, I've been on my own personal journey to build my empire. And for the last year and a half, I've worked diligently on starting a new business all around helping women tackle their period problems and hormonal imbalances using a natural whole foods approach. If you're suffering from extreme cramps, fatigue, bloating, stay tuned because a little bit later in the podcast, I'll share a bit more about my company, Bia. But for now, let's jump into today's episode. I want to welcome this week's guest, Jessica Rolf, to our show today. Jessica is the co-founder and CEO of Love Every, a company that offers products and information which help create developmental experiences in the lives of new babies and families. Jessica is passionate about giving babies the best and healthiest beginning in life. She was a founding partner in her first business, Happy Family, which she helped grow into being one of the top organic food companies, which eventually sold to Group Danone for a reported 200 million. Although she was confident that she was giving her babies the best nutrition, she started to become curious about what each of her three children's brains were craving. After reading a doctoral thesis on child development and years of her learning more about her own children, Jessica decided to start her second baby company, but this time focused on brain development. Today, Love Every has over 200,000 active subscribers to their flagship Play Kids program and has shipped well over a million Play Kids in the last 12 months and continues to grow more than 100% year over year. In our interview together today, Jessica opens up about how she never thought of herself as a quote unquote ideas person when it came to starting a business, nor did she think she'd ever be a founder. And we also discuss how she eventually found her way to starting her business and really finding work that makes a positive impact. We also talk about her biggest mistakes and lessons she made from her first business and a step-by-step approach to how you should think about co-founders, product market fit, fundraising, and so much more. Welcome to the show, Jessica. Oh, it's so great to be here. Thank you. I'm excited. We were chatting a little bit before the interview, but I was just sharing that I think every one of my friends who has a child is on a Love Every subscription. So they're super excited to learn more about you, but I'm super intrigued and inspired by your journey. So I can't wait to jump into it. So thank you again for joining us. Oh, absolutely. So I'd love to actually start with a topic that you are often talking about where you've personally dealt with self-doubt before you were launching Love Every. And I want to bring this up because I feel like it's such a vulnerable position to be in when you are about to launch any company. You know, I've been there. Your insecurities start showing up. It's a very interesting time. So I'd love to get your perspective around how you overcame any type of insecurities that came about when you were launching your business and any advice you have for women who might be in that position today. Yeah, I think it might be really helpful for people to hear that as a second-time entrepreneur, somebody who co-founded a company, did the impossible, sold my business, my first business for hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, started a nonprofit in the meantime, felt insecure about going after it again. And I think that there's layers to that doubt, and then there's a ways to overcome. And I felt so driven by purpose to build Love Every. I had an idea for Love Every. We'll get into it later, but I really am not somebody that has a lot of ideas. Was not a child with lemonade stand with a ton of, you know, always enterprising. I've really only had one idea in my life that has translated into a business, and that is the current business that I have. Going after it a second time, asking investors that had made 20x their money on Happy Family to invest again in Love Every and seeing doubt in their eyes was a hard thing. And it was something that I really had to push through. And oftentimes we think, you know, we have a lot to lose when we're, you know, starting a a business for the first time, but you actually feel even more pressure and more of that sort of doubt in people's eyes. Can she be a serial entrepreneur? Can she do it again? Was she just lucky the first Mm. time? Was it, you know, luck and the right timing? Or does she really have what it takes? So I had to dig deep into myself and really, you know, believe tuning into my purpose and tapping into what drives me was everything for overcoming that. 
You know, one thing you touched upon is you weren't that typical entrepreneurial child that had a lemonade stand, right? And I think we'll go into your story in a bit, but you never really thought even in your early professional career that you were going to be an entrepreneur. So I'm curious, one thing that you did mention is as a child, you always took risks. So I'm curious, do you think that characteristic of yours has really established you to be as successful as you have been today? I'd love to just kind of hear more about that. Yeah, I think risk-taking... is so fundamental to who we become. And you want to see it in children. You want to see them taking the risk and being okay with failure. But it's really hard when you're a high achiever and you want, you know, really, you have a very high standard for yourself to take that risk sometimes. So I felt as a, as a young person that oftentimes my ambition outstripped my abilities. So I would I would dream big. I would wanted to get into Stanford or wanted to get into Brown University or wanted to um, get a Fulbright fellowship or wanted to study abroad in that special place or wanted to go do these things and would get rejected and hmm. had to overcome you know even the basketball team wanted to make the junior varsity basketball team everybody else on my in my grade did that was that I was playing with in 8th grade but didn't make it and i think that there's something about those failures early on taking a risk you learn that you can still overcome and that you can get yourself up and you can just try again so i don't know what it is about me that likes to take risks, but I think it's that the ambition overwhelms the <laughs> the risk of failure. If you don't try, you're never going to get there. And so just trying can can be really powerful. That's so interesting. And I think even, you know, taking those steps and getting rejected in your early, early life is so transformative because you still had the confidence to continue. And I think so much of risk taking is you take a risk, if even if it doesn't work out, you are still okay. And doing that when you're younger and realizing, you know, I wasn't, I didn't make the basketball team or I didn't get into that college and to see how well you did in your life. I mean, I think that's game changing. So to see that in your early career is super helpful. And, you know, one thing you've talked about is you had all these plans to actually become a lawyer. So can you kind of talk to us about that time frame and just really what motivated you to pivot from those career plans? Yeah. So out of college, I don't know how you felt, but I was so confused by all of my peers going to these career fairs and knowing what they wanted to do with their life. For me, I was really trying to tune into how I could make a difference and where that would match my skills and abilities. So I really care about, you know, the, uh, I really wanted to make a difference in the world of, you know, people who don't have as much as I did. So, so felt so privileged, felt like I could be an attorney and help with the homelessness problems, help with, a you know, be a public defender, that that would be, law could be a really important lever for change and felt really inspired by that. So I went to go work for the Federal Trade Commission and volunteered at the legal clinic for the homeless and really immersed myself in the legal world, took the LSAT, didn't do that great on the LSAT. Those standardized tests are very hard. So they can be so hard. They can be so hard and they can be so, def- they feel so important and defining. Yeah. But got through it and sat with all of the brochures for law schools that it felt appropriate for me at the time based on my scores and just found this sort of emptiness feeling and felt like I can't, I don't think I love the language mm-hmm. of law. I don't think that this is where my purpose is going to be for my future. And so doubled down and said, I got to figure this out, wipe the slate clean, moved to San Francisco and, uh, and and pivoted to try and figure out what what that next thing would be for my life. Obviously, San Francisco is just such a hub for startups. So what was the next step? So you decided not to go to law school, wasn't the right fit. You moved to San Francisco, which is already like a big risk in your early 20s. But what was the first foray into entrepreneurship and really what led you eventually to starting your first business, Happy Family? So I had worked in nonprofits and I had worked in the legal sphere and in government. I had not worked for for for-profit enterprises. And so I was really inspired by this possibility that you could create change through business. I love the language of business. I love the pace of business. I love how exciting it is to start companies and see how, see these entrepreneurs. I was following their paths. I volunteered at the Social Venture Network conference and I uh, volunteered also at, at an organization called the Full Circle Fund. Both of those organizations matched social entrepreneurs with 
they were they were really about social entrepreneurship, so building businesses with purpose. Mm. And I found my place. I found my people. I was so excited to have be mentored by Seth Goldman from Honesty and Incredible. loved, you know, kind of following Anita Roddick's path, you know, with with building the body shop and was really inspired by these entrepreneurs that that melded both. So felt like that was going to be my dream purpose. I love that. I think just the exposure that you did, you know, volunteering on the side and then really finding your place because sometimes people are so confused about what's my next step, what's my purpose. And I think just getting that exposure and trying different things, you never know when that light bulb will click. So to see how that worked for you is amazing. So, you know, you found your home, you found social entrepreneurship, but so many people don't know what that idea was, right? Like you said, you never really always had a bunch of ideas to start a business. So how in the world did Happy Family end up coming around? So I partnered up with Shazi Visram, who had the idea to to found Happy Family. She had the idea to do something different in baby food. So at the time, mm. you know, imagine this processed jars. That was the format. There were some people making baby food homemade, but really, you know, there wasn't a whole lot on the on the shelves that really spoke to a modern parent for what they were looking for for food. So she had an idea. I met her through another volunteer opportunity that I did. I volunteered for a Douala as a as a campus representative. Um, this rep this person that I met that I was reporting to at a Douala knew Shazi and said, "You two are both should should partner. You should meet each other because I think you have a lot in common." That's super fascinating. And, you know, I want to go into Love Every, and I know there's so much to unpack with Happy Family. From doing my research, you know, despite all the success that you guys have had and, you know, selling the business, the early days, the first few years were really difficult. So I'd love to get your perspective around, you know, what were maybe one or two of the toughest times that were the biggest learnings that you kind of learned from that first step of building a business that you guys had? There were so many learnings. I, I can think of I, my mind is flooded with with all the failures that we had. One in particular was we had wanted to pivot from our frozen baby food. So we went on gut instinct. We didn't do a lot of testing. We thought frozen baby food, it's perfect. It's beautiful. It's fresh peas that are bright green. The problem was is the frozen baby food was in the baby in the frozen food aisle. And parents were asked to change behavior from shopping in the baby food aisle and move to the frozen aisle. We were also mimicking something that parents were doing homemade. So at a at an additional cost. And so that really we didn't do enough research to understand what our to get to get to product market fit at the at launch. And so we we had to pivot quickly. We were running out of money. We had launched you know, retailers loved our idea. We had a lot of great press. People were not buying our product on shelf. So we uh, hustled. We started buying up the product ourselves to buy ourselves some time. So I drove around uh, our 24-store test in the Midwest with my dad and his station wagon, and we filled up the car with frozen baby food. Our sales would spike for that week. And the target data, we would hang on for a little longer until we figured out our, our plan. And what we pivoted to was a dry cereal. So we thought if we could get parents to understand our brand in the dry aisle, then they would eventually discover us in the frozen aisle. And cereal at the time was really where babies started their first foods. And so we developed a beautiful cereal. It had probiotics and DHA and all these great nutrients. We got to the production side and you know that baby cereal is very fluffy. If you can imagine yeah. it, it's like a, it's like a very fluffy air filled um, cereal. So we were at the production line and, and sizing up our container, and it turns out that the product really settles over time. And so our container was twice as big as all the other containers on shelf and half full. And so we had to put an oops sticker on it and saying, oops, oh you know, we, we just, we missized it, but it's still great cereal. So there were so many mistakes in getting to that product launch and getting to product market fit. There's too many to count. Hey everyone, it's Yasmin here. I wanted to tell you a quick story. Before I started this podcast, I was working extremely long and crazy hours in banking and then in tech. I was totally burnt out, not living my truth and dreaming of always building my own empire. With all of this stress, it came really debilitating periods from bloating, cramping, extreme breast tenderness and really unpredictable moods. I would always complain to my friends that I 
was literally out of commission for at least a week every single month. And that adds up to three months in every year. Other than feeling frustrated that my really bad periods were keeping me from pursuing my actual goals, I knew that something wasn't right. Women are not inherently designed to suffer every single month. That's when I learned about hormonal imbalances. I started working with functional medicine doctors who told me that years of stress combined with taking birth control pills long-term created a cascade of hormonal damage in my body. This is why I felt bloated, tired, crampy, and moody before and throughout my period. They recommended I try something called seed cycling. And let me tell you, it's changed my life. Seed cycling is the simple process of using food as medicine to naturally support your hormones. It uses four different types of seeds, yes, actual seeds, throughout your menstrual cycle to support the balance of hormones like progesterone and estrogen and give your body critical nutrients it needs to achieve your best health. Within weeks of starting this process, I noticed major shifts in my period and my overall health. But I also noticed that seed cycling is actually kind of hard to do. I wanted the best quality seeds freshly ground in the right amount, but it was very time consuming. So I decided to create a simple and effective way for anyone to start seed cycling today using the highest quality organic seeds in the right amounts with the right support. It's called Bia and I'm so excited to bring it to you. Now anyone struggling with hormonal imbalances can easily incorporate seed cycling into their busy schedule with the Bia Seed Cycling Bundle. This process has been life-changing for me. I no longer deal with cramps, bloating, breast tenderness, or any other PMS symptoms before my period. It's been a complete game changer, and it's allowed me to focus on things that matter most to me, like this podcast and building my own empire. And most importantly, I want this for you too. If you or anyone you know has been struggling with hormonal imbalances or bad periods, go to beawellness.com slash free. Once again, it's beawellness.com slash free to download our free guide to our top tips in tackling hormonal imbalances and to learn more about our seed cycling bundle. We included this link in the show notes along with a promo code for $10 off for all of our Behind Her Empire listeners. I know you're going to love seed cycling just as much as I do. Thanks for listening. Listening, and now let's get back to the show. Oh my gosh. I, I have so many questions to unpack there. And I'm smiling because I'm also in the world of food and we're creating the superfood for women's hormones. And last night we had like not, not a fun manufacturing scenario and we're taking those products out, but like just to hear your experience, cause it's so, you know, you need to make sure the product is integrity and everything's right. There always is maybe something that, that might not work. And to your point, like filling of the cereal, there's just so many moving parts. So I could see how that is really detrimental, especially so early on. But, you know, my question is, so you guys had this oop sticker and I know at that time the company was pretty strapped for cash because you're just trying to like keep it alive, right? Your frozen food idea didn't work. Work. You bought those yourselves. I'm sure so much money goes into manufacturing this new product and it's now out. So how did you really create awareness to sell these cereal, um, this new cereal product? Because I know there was a competitor that like coincidentally also went out of business or something happened. Like, tell me more about just how you guys stayed afloat because launching this new cereal is still incredibly tough to get awareness. Well, this is where luck comes in. So if you work hard enough and if you stay in the game and you have enough grit to just persevere, luck will find you eventually. So we had a situation where our main competitor, the only other organic cereal on the market, had a massive out of stock. In out of They were based in Europe and they had trouble getting supply. And so we were able to take all the shelf space with our giant cans. And then we pivoted and worked through that inventory and got to the, a, a right-sized can. And we were able to establish ourselves as uh, the the only cereal on the market in at Whole Foods. And so that was a huge breakthrough for us. That led us to have the momentum and success to not really support the frozen baby food. That limped along for as long mm -hmm. as it could, but to pivot to other dry snacks, puffs, we made an organic puff, and then we eventually landed on some yogurt melts, organic yogurt melts, and then uh, the organic pouch, which really scaled our business. So it was that moment of luck that made such a difference. It's it's nuts. And I love to hear just in terms of 
if you work hard enough and have grit, like you will end up hitting a break and having that luck because that's something we often hear with so many entrepreneurs, but it takes hard work. It's not like sitting back and just hoping something might happen. It's really pushing through. And I'm curious, you know, after having that, I won't say it's a failed attempt, but your first frozen food line at Whole Foods, did that kind of impact your relationship with them? Because clearly you guys ended up doing incredibly well with Whole Foods, but how did that relationship suffer or did it not suffer? I'd love to just hear more about that. Yeah, it was. So they're different buyers. The frozen buyer is different from the dry buyer. So the dry buyer was the dry goods buyer was seeing success with the cereal and excited to try organic snacks and then very excited about our organic pouch line because that was really innovative at the time. So we, again, had the luck of two different buyers in two different departments. I think that the retailers were still excited about the halo of the brand of offering an organic, fresh baby food. It was still unique enough and different enough that they were willing to put up with lower sales at the time. But again, we were in the right time at the right place. Yes. And I'm going to fast forward a little bit because there's a lot I want to unpack in your story. But you guys eventually had a pretty successful exit. And you've been very open about your feelings towards the exit. And we've had many women on the podcast even share, you know, they were somewhat depressed after selling the business because they've really lost their baby and their meaning. So I'm sure there's a lot to unpack there. But I'd love to hear more about that transition and selling the business and how that experience was for you as a first-time founder. Yeah. You know, I think in the media, we often like to think of the one founder, that one that did it, the one with the idea and the vision and the brilliance to make it happen. And it's so often a partnership or a team. And so on the day that we sold Happy Family to Group Danone, it felt like I was having feelings that I shouldn't have. I was feeling, I was feeling sad. I did feel a sense of loss. The media was recognizing my co-founder for, you know, baby makes millions in the Wall Street Journal headlines and, you know, all of these sort of um, success, outward success uh, moments for my co-founder. And I didn't feel seen or recognized in those moments. And that was really hard. And it's so interesting to think how much we like to be seen and like to get credit. And so recognizing that and looking at my own ego and understanding and unpacking that and then mm. how it must feel for my team and making sure that they felt recognized and they felt appreciated on this big moment um, felt really important. So I learned a lot about myself. I think it's, I ultimately learned that I do need credit. I love to give credit and I love to receive credit for hard work. And I think it is hard to, um, kind of be the one behind, the number two, the the more, the less visible one. And so when I co-founded Love Every, I wanted to make sure that my, my co-founder Rod and I had a 50-50 partnership versus the 49-51 partnership that I had with my prior co-founder. I was the 49. Mm-hmm. And that we found ways to get agreement in the beginning on where we would get that recognition and where we would feel uh, appreciated and visible. Um, because I think as much as I'd love to ignore that side of myself and pretend yeah. that it's not there, it, it is there. So, Yeah, no. And I appreciate you just opening up about that. And I think as humans, we all want that recognition. And sometimes even as a founder, like you're leading a team, but no one's telling you you're doing a good job. And you know, I'm sure when you have an exit and they're just focusing on one founder, that must be really tough because there's so much blood, sweat and tears that goes behind the scenes. And like you said, even your team, like a business is built because of your team as well. So it's really everyone impacting that. And I'm curious, you know, your, so you mentioned kind of the split before. So it was 49-51, you had 49%. What were your roles at the time? I mean, were you guys co-CEOs or how was that set up? And how did you think about that differently in your business today at Love Every? Yes. So when I joined Shazi, we didn't have titles. I had proposed a bunch of different titles and to her co-founder did not feel accurate um, at the time of founding the company. So she felt comfortable with founding partner and then she was the founder. Okay. That ended up being confusing for people because founding partner is is sort of more of a financial organization term, but it, yeah. it worked. I played the role as COO and Shazi was CEO. When co-founding the company with Rod, I felt like it was really important that absolutely a female CEO, my idea, um, it's in the baby industry from a consumer-facing perspective, 
me filling the role as CEO felt meaningful and important, but also wanted to make sure that Rod felt really elevated. And, and he is exceptional. He is, we are 50-50 partners. We are absolutely co-founders of this business. It would not be what it is if it weren't for both of us. We're both really important in it. And so president felt like a really okay. honoring title for Rod. So I think it's in those early days when you're really, it's, it's so important to have honest conversations about credit and about roles and about where you want to be. I think, um, to feel good in the long term. Sometimes the emotional drain of those relationships can be the thing that takes the most energy in a business. Mm. There's so much you can fight out in the world and you can build your company and you can get in with customers and you can accomplish anything and overcome any obstacle. But if you're not aligned with your co-founder and if you're feeling bad and not um, recognized or like something isn't in alignment, it can really take away. Oh, I, I agree. And, you know, I learned this, we were talking a bit about this before the podcast, but I worked with my dad and my brother in a family business for a small stint. And, you know, as family, we all obviously trust each other. There's a bond there and we weren't as clear with roles and things ended up growing and we became very successful in, in the line of business that we were in. But one of the biggest learnings I had, like you mentioned, is from the beginning, just try to be as transparent about your roles and have it in writing so everybody is clear. Because like you said, you never know in the future, like how certain resentment can build in some way, but it's like, let's just get it out there and talk about everything, you know, from the beginning. And now I launched a business with my sister-in-law. So another family member and we were very clear about roles and just very specifics with our partnership agreement that like we both feel really excited and comfortable about it. But I think, you know, sometimes with good friends or family, you you kind of put that in the back and you're like, oh, we'll figure it out. Things are always great. And it is, but it's still really important to be on the same page. Um, and, and it's interesting because through your first experience, you really learned about yourself and what was important. And sometimes like you don't know, right? But you have to go through these situations to realize, oh, I actually do care about X, Y, Z. So just, just interesting for perspective on just seeing your own journey with it. Yeah. I think oftentimes the COO role is a, is a, um, behind the scenes role. And, you know, I think Shazi was very much looking for that in a partner. And because we didn't have that early alignment, it caused me some personal, you know, pain later with the business. But it was, it was very expected that she might think a COO is doesn't need to be recognized yeah. as a as a co founder in the business. And so it was, um, a point of tension. And I think if I had really deeply understood how much she needed from the beginning to be yeah. the founder and to be the face of the company and, you know, um, play that role, I think that I would have um, been more honest with myself and we probably would have had the same outcome, but it might've been less of an emotional drain for myself. Sure, sure. And no, I appreciate you sharing that in case it helps anybody who's going through that similar situation now to kind of think through certain aspects. I think that's super helpful. So I appreciate you sharing. And, you know, one thing I'd love to chat about after your exit, I mean, you're still incredibly young, so I'm sure there's so many things that you wanted to do. But did you know you wanted to start another business? I mean, it seems like you wanted to kind of be the forefront of some idea. But how did the the business of Love Every come about? Um, because like you said, you weren't always the one with ideas. So what was that spark in that moment for you? Yeah, it's so interesting. I think oftentimes people do have a spark in a moment. For me, it was a slow burn. I had this experience with my first baby. I felt so good about what I was feeding him. You know, I had, you know, co-founded Happy Family, felt like I really understood all of his nutritional needs, but really felt like I didn't understand what he needed from a cognitive development standpoint. So there's so much happening in brain development between birth and age three. 80% of the brain is developed but I didn't have a roadmap or have a path. And so I found myself with one of those plastic flashing lights toys. And it's like the, you know, the purple cows popping out and all this is happening. And I wondered, is this actually helping him? And I had discovered a really obscure doctoral thesis written on infant brain development and found that it had all these ideas and ways to engage that had nothing to do with the toys. It built my confidence and it helped. I took my baby on house tours. I started making my own kind of prototypes for what is now become Love Every. And it that evolved over years. So I had an experience with my first baby. I then had a second baby. In the beginning, I just started giving this doctoral thesis out to all my friends saying, this is amazing information. You've got to read this. 
and found that nobody was reading it. And I was like, no, 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 this is, this is amazing. Like this is going to, you know, set your child up for, for life. And it was not being well received. So that got me thinking, what is it about this information that's so interesting to me, but not relevant for my friends? And then I started, you know, thinking what Shazi and I created was very much a mass brand based on a very mm. kind of niche insight on health and nutrition and optimizing nutrition for for infants and for young children and all the long-term benefits of, of doing so. But it really, we were able to translate all that nerdy research into something that mm-hmm. was a mass appeal brand. So wanted to do the same for Love Every. At first I thought, you know what, there's not enough stuff. There's not, I could I create an early learning program based on playthings and information. Well, there's not there's not enough ideas here. Then I had another idea for another product. Then I sat with my baby on there with them on my lap and was reading books with illustrations of, you know, frogs and thinking, my toddler just really wants to understand the real world and wants to read a book about getting a skin knee or relating to another child. They have to go to the doctor or getting water in their eyes in the bath. So started dreaming about books and oh. more product examples and things that weren't available to me as a parent. And then started fleshing out the vision for what the product lineup might be. Again, this was over the course of five years, ruminating, wow. wondering, thinking, kind of piecing together the business ideas, and then became real when Rod and I decided to co-found the company. So I, I love that because I think sometimes some people try to force an idea, but it's just a matter of like life circumstances, timing, and things just kind of click at the right time. But it's cool to see it took you a few years. So tell me more how you met your business partner because it went. It seems like it went from you really you know, diving deep into early education, building this passion because of your own kids learning quite a bit. But at what point were you like, okay, let's make it a business and really connected with your co-founder to bring it to life? Yes. So I had a three-year earnout after selling Happy Family and was really starting to feel irrelevant after the second year of the earnout. You know, my my team was so good and was like trying to find inspiration, find trying to find my place, but felt like the team had it. I mean, you know, there's a place and a time for leadership and and where you can insert yourself into a company. And I felt like I, I co-founded a nonprofit called the Climate Collaborative, you know, to try and find that passion, that spark, because I was feeling responsible for all those pouches we put into landfills. We um, did some some meaningful work there and, and really industry leadership at Happy Family. But then after that was like, gosh, like I, I'm not needed. And so started thinking, I really do want to start another company. And I do have this purpose and this drive. So I know Rod because he is my best friend's husband. Oh, and amazing. this is this. So this means that there's a ton of trust that we have built over a lot of years. I met him a week after my best friend met him for the first time. So I've really known their relationship for as it's evolved. And obviously there's you know, layers around my loyalty to my dear friend and what it's like to be co-founding the company with her husband and um, can be unpacked. But I think that we're, we're trying to, I'm trying to be just really vulnerable and honest about how much my friendship means to me. And we're, we're navigating, we've navigated all of, I think a lot of those complexities mm-hmm. with meeting Rod uh, or with talking to him and kind of having that moment, I was asking him for insights on behavior science and how that relates to um, how he thought that that might relate to encouraging parents to change their behavior. So how can we awaken this this insight and this desire to focus on their child's learning in those first years, early years in life? And he had some feedback and then he followed up with an email and he said, why don't we co-found the company? And you know, he, it was just a really exciting moment. So in that moment in, I think that was in 2015, that really kind of became real for me that he was going to be interested in leading the company. So he actually put a lot of energy into the beginning stages of building the company while I was wrapping up my earnout and at my time at Happy Family. And then we launched our first product in 2017. Oh my goodness. I love that. And just kind of understanding what is Rod's background and how do you guys complement each other? And you know, how did you know he would be the right co-founder for this idea that you had? Well, he's super smart and so <laughs> insightful <laughs> and loves leading mission-driven companies. So he is so good at building teams and driving revenue and building our digital and tech and digital 
um, business. Uh, I am tend to be more of the product person and mm-hmm. focus on our interface with our customers and, and mining for insights. We both, it's interesting, it's very easy to kind of put people in boxes. And I notice that people do that a lot. Um, if whether it's a funder or the media and that happened at my prior company oh you know one one of the per- people is the visionary the other is the operational person i would say that rod has brilliant insights on product and that i can also really weigh in on our financial direction so there's there's a lot that yeah. we do together um but having that those years of trust made that partnership make a lot of sense for me I I love that. You guys partnered up in 2015. Your first product came out two years later. Were you guys, did you guys raise capital in between that time or how did you fund the business? And um, when did you start meeting with investors? Yeah, we met with investors pretty soon after we decided in earnest to co-found the company. Uh, we raised a seed round of a three million, and that was the round where I was going to those happy family investors and you know asking them to, to invest. A lot of them did, but when mm-hmm. when some of them didn't, it it did ignite that sort of vulnerable feeling that you have with raising money. And I would say the raising money is one of the hardest things that you need to do in building a company. I'm sure you talk about this. I know you talk about this a lot with with the founders that you speak with. It's about the process and about putting one foot in front of the other. So I really believe in investing in a process and holding yourself accountable to meeting, putting yourself out there, asking for introductions, finding ways, networking in to, you know, whether it's a seed round or a series A funds, seed funds, and then just the deck isn't going to be perfect. Your pitch isn't going to be perfect. Getting feedback on the pitch, taking that feedback in and being vulnerable to put your best at the time foot forward that you know isn't going to be good enough and be willing to do that to push forward to get to what's going to be great. That's that's such a great point. And, you know, kind of thinking about how much it hurt and it burned when those investors who are with you, a happy family, might not have invested in Love Every. You know, there's so many emotions and we've talked about this, you know, early in the interview, but you also talked about how you can do a really good job at kind of keeping those emotions separate and not really allowing it to impact business. Of course, that's easier said than done, but how have you kind of trained that muscle? And uh, can you just kind of speak towards how that's really helped you in those, like, you know, all those rejections that you were essentially going through? Yeah. I learned this lesson at Happy Family very early on that if you it's very vulnerable to have an idea and not have it out in the world yet because you're not getting any validation. You're only as good as your last conversation. So you might have a conversation with somebody, you know, on the plane or a family or friend that says, wow, that you are really onto something. And all of a sudden you're feeling like you're on top of the world, like all of your dreams are going to come true. It's going to be so great. Then you have an, a, another conversation, maybe a couple hours later with a potential investor or a p- potential partner or someone else. And they don't see the vision. They don't get excited. They don't build on your energy. They're They're not... Um, seeing what you see as the potential. It's so easy to get down in those times. Mm. And it's so easy to let a, a setback before you're launched, especially to define your future for yourself. So I always like to tell entrepreneurs to put, let yourself go on those, you know, ride those waves, eat the ice cream if you need to, do whatever you need to do to just feel better in the moment, feel the feels, <laughs> but try to find one next thing that you can do to make your dream happen. And it's in the doing that you become and that you really can realize what it is that your next pivot is going to be or how you're going to accomplish your dreams. So I really believe in taking action no matter what you're feeling at that moment. Mm, I love that. It's like honoring your feelings, doing what you need to get done, but still getting up and putting yourself in action. And you're right. You will always figure out the right next step when you just kind of get out of that sulking and victimizing yourself. Right. So it's it's good to hear that. And, uh, you know, one thing you've talked about with Happy Family that you guys did not do so well early on is really honing in on that product market fit, which I think is hard for a lot of businesses. But I'd love to hear the way you approached it with Love Every versus how you guys kind of did those mistakes early on and what you did differently this time around. So yeah, with Happy Family, it was a lot of instinct, a lot of gut, a lot of, you know, kind of momentum and and excitement from retailers. But again, we didn't do a ton of testing. We did some focus groups, but it wasn't a, a very thorough process around 
getting to the insight of do we do we have are we on to something that's going to work from the beginning with love every we had instinct on what we wanted to build but we also realized that we needed a much more rigorous testing process couldn't afford a an ido or a frog design to do a whole design thinking model but if you study the model and you start you know there's some open source information without taking a class at stanford you can get a lot of information on what the design thinking process is and so we broke that down and there are some core principles one you want to simulate your experience at a very gritty level with really ugly prototypes that can mean walking into people's homes feeling pretty vulnerable like here i am excited about starting this new company and i have this kind of embarrassing prototype that i'm going to going to put neutrally in front of a parent and a child and let them um, give us feedback the benefit of giving of giving these ugly prototypes is that they don't feel like bad to telling you what they really think. So if you give them a polished prototype, they the design thinking, you know, kind of research shows that people are not as honest with you. But if you give them a really ugly prototype, they're willing to tell you, "Hey, like they didn't work that hard on this. I'm just going to tell them what I really think." So you get more honest feedback on the core intent of the design. We followed 25 families for a year. We picked them across the country. They were in a um, all different income groups, a lot of different demographics, uh, siblings. You know, one where um, it was the fifth child, another you know was the first child, and followed gave these families the simulation of the Love Every Play Kit experience with play guides and with these toys that we kind of hacked together um, through local woodworkers or I'm ironing you know iron on <laughs> sewing um, some of the items and then went to their homes and asked them what they thought honestly and and those prototypes were iterated upon and we were able to get to a, a really great kind of final set that we were excited to launch. We had product market from the fit because we did that process. Gotcha. And I know one big differentiator also with this business is you guys didn't immediately go into retail. You guys were more digital first, I believe direct to consumer starting out. So was that a new world for you? You know, how did you guys really create that awareness online versus offline, which is more of your bread and butter at that time? Yeah, so we launched our first product actually at on our own site and on Amazon because Amazon is a great platform for building awareness. We tried to get into Target from the beginning and 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 didn't get in, but our product soon became the number one revenue driver in that category, which is really exciting because it's a very crowded category. So it's, a, it's the number one selling play gym in the category. But our real vision was not to be a toy company or a one-off product company that's you know selling products at retail. Our real vision was to have an ongoing direct relationship with our customers. So the early learning program was our ultimate vision. We launched that a year later. That was direct. And there was a ton of learning that we had to go through around acquiring customers, around you know advertising, around organic, around social influencers, partnerships. You know, figuring all of that out was new for me and, and new, also new for Rod. And we, you know, made a lot of mistakes, but figured a lot out. And I think, you know, we're, we feel like we're able to deliver a best in class experience around revenue growth now mm -hmm. um, that we've kind of been through a lot of that learning. You know, I've, I've a lot of questions there, but just kind of going back to Amazon, you know, so your, your goal was essentially to have this direct relationship with the customer and build that, you know, subscription because you're with this child at different life stages. Clearly with Amazon, you don't have that. You don't have the relationship with the consumer directly. But how did you guys really create the awareness on Amazon? I mean, like you said, it's such a crowded market. So were people just organically coming across your product or did you hire... I know there's like, I'm just learning about this world, like Amazon SEO experts or whatever it's called, but how did you really gain that traction on Amazon starting out to build that initial, initial awareness? Yeah. So we were both launching our product from our own platform. And so we were, you know, running Instagram ads, giving product to influencers, uh, you know, and the product was so thoughtfully designed. I will say that mm -hmm. we worked so hard on that product that once people had it, it word of mouth lit up. Yeah. Um, so we did have our our initial, you know, kind of our own uh, direct consumer strategy. On Amazon, there, you know, you can, you do need to advertise to be successful with Amazon. So we were able to, you know, have a strategy there. We worked with a broker. We had an intention around building awareness. But once the awareness was built and we had, we started seeing those five-star reviews, you know, pouring in by the hundreds, it, it really built momentum. 
you know, there's so many layers that go into building awareness early on, like you've said, right? You guys were doing influencer outreach, content, obviously paid ads. I don't know if there's one answer to this, but what would you say really helped move the needle in those really early days to build the awareness? You know, and obviously organic and word of mouth is part of all that. But I'd love to just kind of hear how you guys thought about it then. So I asked this question to Rachel Blumenthal, uh, the founder of of Rockets of Awesome, and she said what I thought was so smart. She just said, it's a lot, a lot of little things that add up to something big. And so having that mindset of saying nothing is too small, we are going to, you know, kind of go for it all, whether it's a partnership, whether it's an influencer Mm -hmm. strategy, whether it's AdWords, whether it's a content piece that we're writing, whether it's one-to-one approaching somebody cold on the street. It is a lot of those little things that build up into build momentum for building a brand. So I I still stand behind that advice and I don't feel like there's one silver bullet. Yeah, it's like a flywheel of everything. And, you know, when did you begin to slowly see the momentum? Because at some point after you are hitting all these cylinders, and I agree, I mean, I'm seeing it slowly in the business I'm building, even though we're so early. But when did you guys start to kind of see this momentum kind of building a bit? Yeah, I mean, in the beginning, the play gym sales were not amazing but we started iterating on our on our ads and we started getting okay. product out in the, in the hands of influencers so about 6 weeks after launch we started getting those Shopify cha-chings on our phone and we had our phone turned on and we'd be like, we'd celebrate every single one of them. So there weren't a whole lot of sales in the beginning, right? Um, But then they started, you know, getting to a higher level when we finally, we got some, you know, really nice press reviews, really nice, you know, sort of authentic reviews from the kind of mom parent space and some parent publications. And those were were great. We turned those into ads. Those were really productive for us. So we started to really build momentum slowly. When we launched the early learning program, that was, I think, a real moment of vulnerability. And I always get into this sort of kind of, uh, you'd think I'd be so excited before launching a product that you've been working years for. And I am so excited. I'm a big believer. And then I go into these phases where I'm like, oh my gosh, is it going to work? And I sit in that space (laughs) for a couple of weeks. And then I, and I'm like, of course it's going to work. Of course it's going to work. And then you go back and you're like, so before a launch, I can get, I get really nervous and physically nervous and for a couple of weeks or months. And so felt that before we launched our early learning program, when we launched it, because we had had built up so much brand awareness and social following on from our play gym launch, it was a success, a success from the beginning. And it was wow. so exciting to be the first hour after launching, just seeing these customers pour in. Um, it was, it was a real moment for us. Oh, that's so exciting. And I think just what you were saying in terms of any launch, like you have, you know, whether you're talking to family members, investors, or team, and you are personally very excited, but you do have those moments sometimes where you're like, wait, am I doing it correctly? Like your mind will be spinning. Like, how about if this goes wrong or that goes wrong? So it's an interesting balance to kind of toggle between the two, but it's cool to see the success that you had. What I think is also defining is that even if you have some of those doubts, and I'm sure you thoughtfully kind of went through all those scenarios, you still eventually launched, right? Like some people really sit on the idea for years and they don't do it. I mean, even with this podcast, even though it's a side thing, I was mortified with my first episode going out. I think I was like sick to my stomach, even though I love connecting with women. I've been doing it offline for years, throwing dinners, but it's like really still putting it out there, whatever it is, whatever content or anything you're bringing to the world where it's like the most fulfilling and satisfying because you never know like what can happen. I mean, maybe it doesn't work, but you just, you keep pushing and working hard. Like you've saying Then at some point I'll click. So I think the fact that you still always go through and put it out there is, is so inspiring. And I just want to highlight that in case anybody needs that little nudge that we all kind of feel insecure and emotional and craziness before it. But it's really the difference of really putting yourself and putting it out there that I think really can bring success at some point. Yeah, I think I read somewhere that entrepreneurs are generally overly optimistic about their future and the potential, but also hyper vigilant and paranoid and worried about what could go (laughs) wrong. And balancing those two and honoring that being in that space of what could go wrong and feeling a little bit worried and and depressed about that actually has true value to your final outcome. There's, There's something productive about those feelings. So treating them with respect, but then also remembering that, you know, what's the cho- what's the choice if you're living your purpose you've got to put it out there so yes you often talk about perfectionism and how you know doing everything right is just tough and especially you you know you have young kids your mother you're growing and you're the ceo of this very high growth business 
How have you thought about perfection and, you know, with yourself and even employees and mothers that also work for your business? Because I know during COVID was a huge success and like a massive year for you guys. So I'd just love to hear how you think about perfectionism and how you manage all these different hats that you're working on in your life. Yeah. I mean, there's, I'm really b- big believer in focus and, and building, deciding what you're going to do so well and putting hypervigilance towards that. So I'm really obsessive about the product and the experience and the customer facing experience at Love Every. So I actually edit every single piece of content and we've had thousands of pieces of content now. Um, I wrote the first guidebooks in partnership with our writers and our product development people. So really into a lot of editing, really into being very intentional and focused but it also means that you're letting a lot go. So my house is messy. You know, I, I wish that I had, I wish that I was really great at providing great meals for my family every night. You know, I, I Instapot a lot. I'm trying to figure it out. I'll like, uh, throw something together, quesadillas, whatever it is. Um, my kids kind of look disheveled when they walk out the door. Like their hair <laughs> isn't always combed. They're definitely not wearing the right stuff. And I sometimes feel like, you know, if I see people out in the street, they're like, wow, like that's, those are Jessica's children. They're so, um, they have big personalities, but they, they, they don't look that great or whatever it is. You feel insecure about those things or feel worried. You have to know that you're just letting some things go. You have to let whole chunks and categories mm-hmm. Go so that you can be intentional about your time. So my goal is to be focused on the important right things at Love Every that are especially related to our customer and their experience. I, I cannot let that go and will not let that go. And that at home, I really try and focus on prioritizing quality time with my kids. And it's less about them looking great or having a neat house or eating all the best dinners. Mm, God, I think that's so real and raw. And I think that's, I'm, I appreciate you sharing that because I think sometimes women have expectations of doing every single thing. And I just think that is like going to near you to burnout and not even be happy and excited about what you're doing or being a mom or running this business. So I think you being very realistic of, you know, I'm building this thing. I want to be there for my kids, but there are certain things that just have to give. And I'm, I'm laughing because I don't, we don't have kids, but I, you know, I'm somewhat OCD in terms of, I like my house a certain way, but ever since I launched the business, all those rules are out the door. And my husband laughs. He's like, this just shows that you're building a business. And I'm like, you know, you're right. Like there's only so much I can care and really think about, right. Especially when you're when you're trying to be focused and thoughtful, you can't have so many inputs in your brain. And for me right now, it's like making sure the business is great, the podcast and my family and friends, like everything else in the house. I'm like, whatever, there's boxes here. Our bed isn't made perfectly. Like that is not old Yasmin, but I totally resonate with that. And I think that is really the magic sauce with a lot of women that I talk to who do have families and kids. It's like, they're not doing everything and they're letting things go. And that's what allows you to really show up as your best self and have the mindset, right? Like you need to be very, um, you need to have certain boundaries to have the right mindset to show up, to do the work you're doing. Cause it's not easy at all. So I just so appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. And I think that as entrepreneurs and as, as you know, leaders, we see possibility everywhere. We see possibility for organizing that closet, just like we see possibility for building an, an entirely new business um, and taking it global. And so it's yeah. shutting down your brain and saying, I'm not going to organize that closet. I'm not going to do that. And it's in the not doing that you're creating space for doing the right things and the things that bring you the most value in your life. Yeah. And I know in another interview, I think you were talking about like even showing up, showing up on this interview, I was just with the kids, like I didn't have time to put makeup on, you know, there's like just certain things that you're just like, whatever, you know, I don't care how my hair looks or what I look like. Just By the way, yes, I get ready in like 10 minutes and I, you know, and I, I love to, to try and look good, but honestly, that is one thing that gives. It's like, yeah. <laughs> you can't, you can't win everywhere all the time. So all the time. Well, you yeah. look fabulous, but yes, that definitely resonates with me. You know, one thing I'd love to get your perspective on is, you know, you meet so many entrepreneurs, what would you say are maybe one or two things that are the biggest mistakes people are typically making when starting or launching their business? Yeah, I think not going deep enough, not going deep enough and asking themselves the questions around what the consumer really wants and what that customer experience is going to be. I see a lot of 
kind of skimming the surface or thinking you've got a good idea and building on that momentum. And again, I've been there. I've I've fallen into those traps multiple times. And what I've learned over founding multiple businesses and one nonprofit is that if you can really ask yourself the deep questions and do the hard work and stay gritty throughout, you will be successful. And in scaling, one of the biggest things the challenges that I've done is, is I continue to try and do things that don't scale so that I can keep learning and staying close to the customer. So I don't want our customers to become numbers. I'm obsessive about their customer, the, the customer experience, um, trying to stay so close and so present to what it's like. It's very easy to kind of sit in an office and start looking at financial reports and start having meetings. You're, you get booked with meetings. But when are you really connecting one-to-one with your customers? So mm. I, love my, I love my Instagram for that. I DM with customers all the time. I love you know getting into customers' homes. I'm going to be doing that again after COVID. Did a lot of Zoom interviews. Um, I love approaching people on the street, literally, and asking and giving them a, a, a coupon for Love Every. And, and if they know about it, asking them what their experience has been. So finding those touch points. I think can be really relevant. And then of course, we have a really rigorous research process at Love Every that I'm very involved in, in, in understanding play studies and engineering designs and um, really getting to the root of what parents and children really need uh, from, from us and how we can best serve that. So that's my, my, be- my best advice, I guess. <laughs> Yeah. And I think what you mentioned about doing things that don't scale, I think that's super interesting because, you know, we're much smaller compared to you, but I'm also very obsessive with the customers and I'm probably answering majority of the customer service emails, all of the DMs. Like I had a customer the other day tell me like, how in the world are you remembering things? I'm like, I just can't let my hand go. And a lot of people have told me like, Yasmin, at some point, like you can't do everything. And I've always, and, and, you know, after a few days and really sitting on it, I'm like, no, whatever it is, I'm still going to stay close to the customer. So I appreciate that you are still involved in doing things that don't necessarily scale. But are there, do you think you just stay very focused on customer service because that's something you are very passionate about and you've kind of let go of other aspects of things that quote unquote might not scale? How do you think about that? If, if I, if that makes sense, if I was, it makes a ton of sense. It makes a ton of sense because you cannot be a good leader at scale and do things all the time that don't scale. Right. So it's about, I really am tuned into my intuition and sort of what my, my, all the data in my brain is saying about a department and whether things are working. So I'm, I'm pretty binary. If something is working really well, I let it go and I'm excited and I cheer that leader on and I'm, you know, there and present for check-ins and they can tell me what's going on, but I'm, I'm very hands off and trusting with major categories of the business. I'm constantly kind of scanning for what isn't working and then going really deep into that space and area and then building from the ground up a place where it can work. So I, I agree with you. you. You can't stay in the details, all the details all the time, but you can use your intuition to say what feels most important right now for the business and the direction mm. of the business. And how can I go deep enough so that I can really get to the root problem and understand it from the very ground, from the, you know, from the beginning and from the ground floor and then build up a solution that feels sustainable. Mm. I love that. And I think especially so early in the business, like really being close to the customers like you've been doing and learning what's working, what's not working, I think is so, so key. But you know, one last thing I'd love to close on is you could clearly be very overwhelmed with everything that you're managing. Do you got do you have any self-care rituals that you do or anything that kind of keeps you centered? Because like you said, you're it seems like you're very tapped into your intuition and gut, which I think is a big gift. But anything you do to foster that and just kind of allow you to be a little bit more centered in your day-to-day life? Well, start with, because I always find this so unrelatable, right? You hear all these people who are like, and then I have my morning meditation routine with my journaling and my da-da-da. And I'm like, oh, I will start by telling you I eat too much chocolate. I eat chocolate in the morning for caffeine and not coffee. I eat too much of it. And sometimes it affects my sleep cycles. And so I don't always get the best sleep. So I have my flaws, but I do try to work out for 20 minutes. I, you know, kill myself on the treadmill, uh, every morning, try to try to, you know, most mornings find that that gives me that sort of rush and that feeling, uh, that feels good. And I squeeze it in cause it's at home. Um, so I can do it while the kids are still asleep. And then I don't know. I mean, I, I think that being, spending time with my kids and reading to them at night and snuggling in with a good book, 
is so nurturing for me as well as them. It's my nine and 11 year old. I still read to my nine year old and um, wish I could get, you know, I, I'm craving a new book for, with my 11 year old and of course read to my seven year old. But I think that people, you know, often kind of let that go when the kids are getting older, they can read to themselves. But I just love reading out loud to my kids. It's, it's so nurturing for me when it's a good book. Yeah, it's so beautiful. And I know you mentioned in another interview, like also, I believe you're based in Idaho in Boise or did I make that up? Okay. Yes. And I know you were saying just also being not in like a very metropolitan city, like in the nature, do you think that kind of helps you stay sane when you have so much going on? Yes. I mean, it's a really great backdrop to a very hectic life to not have a lot of the extras, right? So I don't have a commute. You know, we get Instacart for groceries. Life is pretty easy living in Boise. I have a, yeah, I think I can get to work in like eight minutes. Um, Mm. And so it's, it's really nice to keep other things pretty simple when you have a, a kind of a big focus in building a company. So again, it's about what you're not doing um, mm-hmm. that's as important as what you are doing. And keeping things simple. Well, Jessica, I so appreciate you joining. It was such an honor to meet you. Thank you so much for joining us today. This was so much oh fun. My, it's been so great, Yasmin. Thank you. Thank you.